Hello and welcome back to Indie Filmopolis. My name is Philip Yu. I'm a filmmaker and indie film enthusiast, and I'm here once again with actor and producer Mike Bourne. Hello. How's it going, Mike? Good, good. I've still got all my limbs. <laughs> good. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while since we've done one of these, but uh, thanks for hanging in there. Welcome back. Yeah, well, you know, it took a while to hide the body of Santa in my back garden. True. Oh yes, of course. I forgot we were off killing Santa last time. Uh, how was your Christmas? Uh, well, it took a while for the blood to get out of my hands, but uh-huh. you know, it was good. So, anyway, Indie Filmopolis is a podcast dedicated to indie films, the ones that we love and the ones that we make. In this episode, we'll be talking about the screening successes of our films Almost Enemy, a black comedy feature, and our award-winning short horror film Conditioning. And we'll also be talking about two great behind-the-scenes documentaries for films that had everything going for them, but ended in complete and utter disaster. But before we kick things off, uh, let's just give a quick but massive shout out to our long-suffering and very patient Indiegogo followers. Uh, thanks, Indiegogo. Yeah, thanks for hanging in there. I think you'll be pleased with what we've got to talk about this episode. Yeah. And if you found this podcast by other means, thanks for joining us. Yes, please. Join the right, so before we jump on to Unwist Enemy, let's talk about conditioning, which is what I'm glad to call now that award-winning quote-unquote, uh, horror, short horror film. It's been doing great on the festival circuit. And recently, while I was trawling, trawling through some festivals to submit conditioning to, I came across a great festival called the Transparent Film Festival, which is based out of New York Excellent. and run by a guy called Brian McLean. And the very unique feature of this film festival is it offers feedback. Now, if you're familiar with or had any experience with film festivals, you will know that the vast majority, in fact, I'd go out on a limb and say 99.9% of film festivals offer no feedback whatsoever, whether you're accepted or not accepted. You you pay your money and you have no idea whether they've watched it or not. Um, some cases they probably just don't. Do absolutely. It. And, you know, some film festivals can be quite reasonable, some can be quite expensive. But in any case, if you want to really give your film the best shot possible you need to put them in as many film festivals as possible all around the world and even those cheaper film festivals they all add up and at the end of it you may or may not get anything out of that and previously we've been pretty lucky with what we've got in terms of awards and laurels and yeah. acceptances and stuff but it is fantastic that this film festival's cropped up offering feedback yeah. so anyway I submitted conditioning to this festival and um, I'd actually kind of forgot that I'd done it um, <laughs> and it was really dead cheap. I think it was like $12 or something it w- really wasn't much no was that just for the review or for the submission for both oh right yeah oh, yeah just to, to submit and uh, receive a, a, a critical appraisal yeah, whatever. of course yeah. so anyway what I thought would be nice uh, is because there's not too much about conditioning out there at the moment I thought I'd let you read some edited highlights from the feedback we got on the film just to give people an idea because I you know I'm going to completely promote and highlight this film festival because it's oh, an yeah. awesome thing uh, to exist uh, just hopefully to give start many others, uh, hope, hopefully yeah, yeah hopefully hopefully uh, this is their first year so hopefully you know try and drive as many people to it as possible yeah, build up um, that momentum for that that festival and the, the support really because it is something that's badly lacking. It, it's something that needs. I mean, a lot of these there needs to be reviews of film festivals themselves mm-hmm. that have become too complacent, and somebody like this to go out on the limb and actually review and ask for that. It, it's great that you spent the time doing it. Fantastic. So, 
Yes. So anyway, just going to share with you some edited highlights of what we got back. First of all, you have the potential to be one of the masters of horror. Your filmmaking skills are that good. I don't need to go through the laundry list of technical accolades as I do with other films because a quality check was, as with everything else, performed at a high level. The sheer viciousness and brutality are shocking and difficult to watch. Kudos for making everything look so real. The performances are more than authentic, they're excellent. But what amazes me the most is that there is a message. And that is what is perhaps the most impressive aspect of your film. Is that if we don't learn to become a more tolerant society, this is what potentially awaits us. And that's the review. Yeah, well, just a side note, they did offer some great constructive feedback as well. But it's, oh, yes, it's, it's, yeah. it's so specific, there's no point including it in what we're talking about. No, it spoil because everybody's view of Unless that. you've seen the film. You, that wouldn't come across but yeah so it wasn't just a you know this film's great blah 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 it, they did give some great constructive feedback as well yeah, which is yeah, good, brilliant good. and like i said i can't thank these people enough for just existing really um i think even if i didn't have a film to submit i would be promoting this festival yeah. so any film that i have in the future will be going to them yeah um like i said it's their first year so i hope it's a great success for them and um if you do have a film to submit and you fancy the novelty of getting some feedback on your film, um, head over to Film Freeway. I think that's the only place you can go. But uh, yeah, the Transparent Film Festival, based out of New York, run by Brian McLean. Check that out. So we're doing well on the horror short front, but our big project at the minute that we've been slaving away at for the past <clears throat> years uh, is Almost Enemy, which is what I'm assuming most people are here yeah. to hear about um at these well, the end of last year we we've sort of put a a deadline of sorts and said at what was it the 20th of january yeah it was the, sorry, it was the uh i think it was the 29th of january but you finished it before it it was about the 20th or the 21st of january that we were going to screen it to close friends and industry people who'd worked on it people who had knowledge of the technological aspects who could offer constructive criticism rather than an emotional review yes absolutely so yeah people in the know people who would give us honest and constructive feedback as yeah. well because that's what's at this stage is what is important we have the pleasure of uh, watching this uh, this film in its virtual entirety before us yeah there are little technical things um, that needed adjusting, which you made us aware of before we uh, started the screening. But wow, um, didn't it get a good review? It it went great. So, as you know, might have known from previous episodes, the film was previously run at two and a half hours. That's right. And I, for the first two weeks of January, first two three weeks of January, I was just cutting, 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 and got it down to two hours five minutes, and that was the cut that we screened. Yeah to our friends and industry colleagues. And that, that was one of the main things you wanted. You wanted to know, because you wanted it to try and get it under the two hours. Yeah. You were mainly and specifically after what else could you cut to get it to the two mm -hmm. hours. And to be honest, I think the saying came from everybody there, you don't really need to cut anything else. There may be adjustments need to be made and the editing possibly tighter, but that yeah. should get it just to the two hours. Yes, yeah, so this is something that you don't know, but um, so I, I, I said, for me I, yeah, because I got feedback from that session and feedback from other people. And so I sat down with the notes and I went through the film yeah. 
maybe took out about seven or eight minutes. Oh, excellent. And then Paul Craythorne, who was also at the screen, he's been yeah, a, a stalwart. Yeah. Um, and then he came over a couple of nights ago and he sat down with me and I went through, I got everything marked out, what I think could go, what I don't think could go, what, what are sort of potential problem scenes, what scenes are in actual fact too long, what can come out. And so we just focus on individual scenes. And by the time we'd finished that, which was probably only over a three-hour period, mm. we'd got the film down to an hour and 50 minutes. Oh, brilliant. So, and I still think there's a bit more tightening to do. So mm. I think all in all, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll be under the two hours, which is great. Next cut really is just kind of tidying up, finessing everything, yeah, and then that sh- like should be there. A few technical shots, green screen things. Right, that's right. Yeah, so there was a few extra shots to be added in, but for the most part, we have everything. The other, although we are going to do some more sh- shooting, aren't we? We need to arrange that. But um, from a sort of a quite a, a baggy two and a half hour film where I'm sort of tearing my hair out thinking where can I cut it to just having like Mike said some kind of independent non-emotional uh feedback to to the film and it's just yeah it's been great I think we talked before it's just the best thing bringing on other people to have a view and not to take any criticism personally just to take it all on board and sometimes I agree sometimes I don't but if if I do it's just you know, fantastic to have and to be brought to that conclusion. Especially as on other scales, there were on other positive notes, there were moments which were genuinely laugh out loud funny. There were genuine moments where some of the the crew couldn't help but. It, um, yeah, they were just in fits of laughter. Even yeah. when Paul came over the other night and he'd already seen it and he just couldn't get through some scenes because he was just <laughs> laughing so much and he was making me rewind them <laughs> or play them over again. Um, so, I mean, if 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 people who've worked on the film and seen the film multiple times yeah. want to rewatch it, now, that's that's really positive. And so, um, this is a nice play out to all those Indiegogo followers that it it is on track and it's looking really good. Yeah. This isn't just us saying it, which is nice. No, um, well, and if technically it is, but you know, <laughs> yeah. One of the things that people have been constantly asking me, uh, particularly some of the Indiegogo people. Yeah. is are we going to get to see the deleted so I think they're kind of worried that they're getting less for their money I'd certainly you'll, well, that's how a film works, you'll be it? getting everything I'd much rather yeah. there was um, a shorter version of the film that would just zipped along and no one felt bored um, and you can enjoy all the bits we cut out uh, separately and for some reasons you know there there are good scenes but um, they had to come out for pacing reasons or structure reasons or that yeah. sometimes they just didn't fit sometimes the really great scenes individually on their own but within the, the whole film the whole they just box, don't you, work you've, you've got to you've got to cut back and this is what you've got to sacrifice one of my favorite scenes i noticed wasn't in there but that's by the by because mm-hmm. you know the film's the main thing that's what's going to sell it but like i said don't worry all those moments you know we're not cutting this piece to to ribbons and you know you'll be left with nothing. You, you'll get everything, just not necessarily in in the one film. You'll, again, get, you'll get all the deleted that, stuff. That's that's how filmmaking mm-hmm. works. People, you you'll film a. Th- I mean, if you take Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, his director's cut versions were mm-hmm. three and a quarter hours long. So imagine how much hours of filming he did before that. 
I mean, people were away for an entire year in yeah. to do these three mm -hmm. films, which, when whittled down to the normal running times, came to about eight hours. Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that's just how film works. That's pretty much, yeah, where we're at. Yeah. Um, we're cracking on. I'm looking forward to getting to the end. The end is in sight. Um, for as long as we've been doing this podcast, we've been talking about the behind the scenes of the making of our film. And we thought we'd talk about a couple of really good behind-the-scenes documentaries. Yeah, it seemed very apt, considering what we're doing. Because, um, you know, as much as we like talking about what we're up to, we also like talking about other low-budget films, behind-the-scenes stuff, documentaries. And so you've got two, which just, they kind of have a bit of overlap. Yeah. In the sense that they're both documentaries about the making of films, kind of. The one definitely is the one, sort of, is... Mm. And in both cases, they do not go as planned. Definitely not. I mean, the classic one that everybody knows of is Lost in La Mancha. Yeah. Terry Gilliam, his take on Don Quixote. Which I think was already his second stab at it. Yeah. Um, after his first initial endeavour to, to bring that to the screen had failed. Um, he often talks about... Um, how much he gets so invested in a film it can almost give him a heart attack he's mm -hmm. all trying to make films as perfectly as he wants to make them he's got such an enthusiasm to try and make it and bless him he there seems to be a curse with Don Quixote because there's been previous films that people have tried to make of Don Quixote and have failed mm -hmm. just, this one just happens to be the most famous two at least of the major things that happened was on one particular day where it had been dry for months, mm -hmm. months on this one particular location. Um, they had a fantastic filming day of... Um, I don't know, I wouldn't say it was fantastic. I mean, it, sounded, well, it, looked it seemed like, like it was going to be. It was the start, everything looked good, people yeah, were there. On... It's always plagued the problems, but they'd. <coughs> I think they'd filmed four or five days already in this one location, yeah. like you said. Torrential rain yeah, hit was it. Yeah. such bad rain that it was sweeping away equipment it was sweeping away cars crops. it destroyed lots and lots of the stuff that was on the set mm -hmm. I mean it was it was a really devastating rainstorm um, we're not talking biblical but it was only a couple of steps down from it, it I mean it, what, there were rivers actually mm -hmm. going yeah. through the set mm -hmm. at one point and because of that not only did it destroy the set but because the land had been so dry for so long, it uh, physically changed the colour mm -hmm. of the background. And so Gilliam could no longer use it because it would need another few days for it to dry up. Yeah. Or have to reshoot yeah. everything in the new um, colour. So it just it wasn't going well. Yeah. The next problem to strike was the his main actor, actor. Uh, Jean Rochefort. I mean, he... Gilliam couldn't picture anybody else playing Don Quixote except Gene Rochefort. He goes on about it quite a bit at the start. Mm -hmm. He's the actor. He's the one he wants. And then, disaster, he falls off his horse. And we're not sure... He either falls off his horse or he develops a hernia or something. Something <laughs> happens. And he has to... And they tr he, has to have, he has a few days rest. So yeah. That's fine, because then... Um, Gilliam goes off and films some other scenes with some mm -hmm. um, Mexican giants, in inverted commas, uh, which look good, and they've got the G Gilliam look about them. Um, but when this actor returns, he can't ride. He tries to ride on a horse, but he can ride on a horse for maybe 10 minutes before he's in so much pain, mm -hmm. he can't do it. 
and then finds out he has to go back to France and have this major operation which is going to keep him out of work for about six to eight months. So again, another major disaster. And whereas in that case, it wasn't the fault of Gilliam that Jean Rochefort became ill, mm -hmm. I do put a bit of blame on Gilliam because he didn't have a plan B. You've come across films where it was up for an literal lead. Yeah. That person's turned it down, they've turned to somebody else, mm -hmm. and that's made the film. A classic example is the Indiana Jones series. Originally, it was supposed to be Tom Selleck. Harrison Ford came in, he made the character his own. Mm -hmm. But Gilliam didn't have that with this. He saw Jean Roche was the only person yeah. that he could think of at that time that could play Don Quixote, and he didn't have a backup. Yeah, and he wasn't willing to either. No. That's, that's the problem. He's so kind of dead set on everything and it has to yeah. be so particular and he's so unwavering in his vision which is great to a certain extent but when you're faced with this kind of problem yeah. um You've you really need to, to be, be more adaptable yeah. than and, and we have we have been when we've been filming stuff you just have to you have to be yeah and that will yeah. come up at the end of it how we've spent so long looking for the one location we ended up finally doing the last few little shots in there completely different location right. we had to sort of i guess you know we come from a, a different world of filmmaking i think um terry gilliam might have been exposed to although having said that you know he, he did come from low budget filmmaking i mean the in, yeah. monty python films were just ridiculously low budget and they just you know the classic example of the um the horses with the coconuts oh, the yeah, you know they the couldn't the afford horses so the holy grail but yeah, I guess you never know which of the the six of them. It probably wasn't Gilliam. He was probably the one who was dead against that kind of thing. Um, it's a shame that he kind of hasn't followed or brought some of that mentality with him where you can make the best of a, a rough situation where they did. Yeah. They couldn't afford horses, so they built a joke around it. And it's one of the standout things of Holy Grail. But yeah. the documentary itself... Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Really, really fascinating. There's just moments which stay with me. one of the moments that stay with me is well two of the moments is when the producers finally tell the, the majority of the crew who are working on this hard that everything's gone mm -hmm. it has to go and yeah. this is only six days it lasted six days this filming and then there's the moment where you could tell for Gilliam it had reached that point. They were filming in a, a nearby waterfall scene, mm -hmm. and they were losing the light, or they were losing something else, and it wasn't working. And everybody's clearing off set, and yet the documentary filmmaker focuses on Gillian, who is literally just sitting there holding his head in his hands. Mm -hmm. And they, and Gillian, throughout the, the documentary, is very vocal. He talks a lot, yeah. But at that moment, he's he's, he's devastated, and it's. And it's tragic to see that. It's crazy. But it's also a good kind of um, illustration of how film sets work as well. And one of the things that they brought up in that was when films aren't going to plan, normally the first person they fire is the first assistant director. <laughs> yeah. And the first assistant director, who is um, who was Philip Patterson, yeah. he was aware that that was going to happen, so he, he left before he was fired. Um but you know, there's absolutely. But there's, you know, it's just yeah. typical of films of this scale. It was absolutely nothing to do with the first assistant director, no. but they they do they do this all the time. They did it with um, Solo, yeah. when Lord and Miller, the original directors, yeah. and the film just wasn't coming together because they normally edit and shoot at the same time. The first person they fired was the editor, which is just ridiculous. I mean, that's a, 
out of all the bits of um, and it's just that that really infuriated me when I found that out. It was like, you know, your film isn't working. Of course, of course, it's the editor's fault. Like some other editor would be able to miraculously make what they were shooting any better. Eventually, they ended up firing the directors because they'd run out of people to fire. It's a lot of passing the buck with these things, and that happened on on Lost in La Mancha. All these things were going wrong. Who's the most expendable but high-profile person on the set that we can sack? The first assistant director. No one wanted to take responsibility, really. Um, There were so many issues, you know, beyond that. I mean, they they went to a sound stage with the only sound stage that was free in was it Spain where they were shooting, and there were problems. Straight away, it wasn't it wasn't soundproofed at all, was it? No. I mean, the only good thing seemed to be some of the set design and costume. Those were yeah, two even that even that was out. interesting with the costume design. They had a, an Oscar-winning costume designer. Yeah. And when Terry Gilling walked in and see what she'd done, he was tearing it to pieces and he was putting it together and he was kind of taking the piss out of her, really. And he was yeah. going, on, oh, don't worry, we'll win another Oscar for you, don't worry. And he was putting <sighs> the, the costumes together for her. <laughs> um, and I just, I don't know, it's just really interesting to see that that sign you've got lots of money and resources at your disposal and talent as well but for whatever reason with this film it just didn't come together and it wasn't one problem you know they could have coped with a few days of rain having to reshoot stuff but it was just a cavalcade of the disasters they packed all the stuff up in the end um, and what happened to it I believe was the insurance company they, they gained the rights to the script and all the that's props. That's right, and Gilliam's looking at trying to purchase it back from the insurance company. And I'm not sure, he must have been able to purchase the script back, because as you probably know, last year he finally released the film. Again, that came with much um, many troubles and much controversy, even after he'd finished the film, uh, with Jonathan Price in the role of Don Quixote and um, Adam Driver in Johnny Depp's role. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember last year, he, he was supposed to premiere at Cannes, and one of the original producers from the early 2000s version yeah. said he still had a claim over the film and tried to block the oh, screening. Right. So so days before the screening, they were in court trying to get, trying to, to get establish them. the rights and get permission to screen the film at Cannes, which they finally did with hours to go. And um, oh, so it's been doing film festivals... Uh, since it debuted at Cannes, but there's no kind of wide release planned as yet. Hopefully, we'll finally get to yeah, nice to, to see, see this film. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether it's worth it as well. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, it deserves to be to be seen. It kind of, yeah. I think, yeah, it's owed that much. Yeah. yeah, it's had that many troubles. So that film went through many troubles and that particular incarnation of that documentary which was an incredible documentary really that existed because they were just there as a behind the scenes crew presumably that that content would have just have become dvd features on the film (laughs) instead because it fell apart so spectacularly they were able to create a whole feature film uh, feature documentary in its own right off the back of it so whereas lost in la mancha had a series of disasters that befelled it, that were sort of not the most really... part out of the control. Yeah, out of the control of the, the makers. Um, the next film, Overnight, can be summed up as simply this one guy's fault. This guy 
was given a great opportunity to make uh, his film that he'd written the script for called The Boondog Saints. He was taken on by a major production company and he had the world at his feet to be able to make this film. The late 90s, Harvey Weinstein bought this script and into the bargain he also bought the bar that uh, this Troy Duffy worked at. Yeah. Um, and there was a whole kind of media storm surrounding what was going on. And the big part of this thing was that Harvey Weinstein had bought the bar for him and his friends to hang out at as well as funding his film yeah in conjunction with everything that was going on there he was also was in a band with his brother and because there was a lot of heat on this troy duffy as a filmmaker um and he came from nowhere before this he was a bouncer i think yeah and he worked in the bar. He worked in the bar as a bouncer and so he'd got no filmmaking experience whatsoever and not only did they buy the script off him they gave him the rights, the right to direct it, yeah. which is insane. Uh, it was just a completely unprecedented deal. So, he, like I said, he was in this band as well, and because of the the heat and the the limelight thrust upon him as a nobody, having been bought a bar, and his script being bought and financed, and him being allowed to direct the film as well, big record labels were interested in his band. Yeah. And they eventually signed the band Sight Unseen. They hadn't heard the band. They hadn't seen what the band were. But was it Maverick Records, Madonna's label? Yeah. Gave them a record deal. So he's got a filmmaking deal. He's got a bar. And he's got a record deal. He's he got like, everything. Yeah, he's, but he also feels, you get it from him, that he's got this expectation to deliver. But he takes this upon his own shoulders. And like you say, he's an unknown. Mm -hmm. No one can, from an unknown, can burden all that so much. And what any normal person would have to do is delegate and trust in the people that you work with to produce for you. Particularly the the highly experienced people who seem to be alienating the most. The people who knew the most, who um, were there for him. Very early on, he began to alienate them. And I think there's a quite a big jump in the film. It starts yeah. off with all the success... And very quickly, it goes south, and Miramax are not returning his calls. Especially Harvey not yeah. returning them. And his uh, assistant and the producer that he put on to help make yeah. uh, the Boondock Saints, they just weren't getting back to him because he'd already pissed them off. Yeah, I mean, he, the amount of disrespect he was showing people, mm -hmm. and his ego was coming through so much. You say, like... Um, my film is completely unique in the scripts writing and how it is and it's the next biggest thing if you can't get on board with my next biggest thing you're not worth me talking to mm -hmm. and that was the sort of attitude he was coming over with but rather than talk to just the people around him that he knew like that he was talking to the film experts in mm -hmm. that way and they were like no you're, you're a drop in the ocean compared to what we've gone through yeah. and this just wasn't getting through to him at all but he also seemed to have this attitude where he, where he felt like he deserved all of this glory placed upon him. And I don't know if you if it came across very much at the start of the film, but it's almost like a lot of the industry were doing that to him as well. If the people in the film industry 
turn around and everywhere you look, they point to you and go, he's the next big thing. Mm -hmm. He's the next big thing. You're going to start believing it. Yeah. I mean, another thing that happened was there was a lot of footage of big actors of the day and some actors who are big now at yeah. this bar hanging out with him, wanting to yeah. get on board with what he's doing and want to be at this place, seen at the, as the new cool place. I mean, there was like some Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, Mark Wahlberg was um, there. Billy Zane, who's not so much a household name now, but at the time... At the time with Titanic. And, and I can't world. remember who else was hanging. There was a whole bunch of, yeah, of, people, of people who... Who wanted to be seen at this bar and in in his company? Yeah, and so yeah, he was he was the next big thing. They're signed to this big record label, so they paired them up with a very successful producer. Yeah, who was who the band, particularly Troy Duffy, were complete loggerheads with him. And he's like, you know, guys, I've been doing this for years, and they're like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know our band. You don't know what we want to do. Yeah. It's just crazy that. Just the resources that they were given, the expertise that were, were there to help them. Yeah. And they're just kind of shutting everyone down at every turn. What's really greatly ironic is the only thing he didn't have control over was the documentary itself overnight. Mm -hmm. He wanted this behind-the-scenes documentary to film every aspect to get it tr true to form, and it would obviously... Like uh, Lost in Man La Mancha, be like the afterthought, the extras mm -hmm. on the DVD, and it was going to be the extras on the Boondock Saints. It turned out it wasn't going to be that in the end. Everything be with this documentary isn't done up to the camera, because obviously he, f he would feel he would have ultimate control in the end, because he, he lost everything. He did, yeah. So eventually Miramax dropped him. Yeah. And so he's scrambling around to to make that movie and I think eventually they ended up making it for a tenth of the yeah. budget that Miramax and were an offering. independent producer took it on board. Yeah. And got, he actually, um, but it was successful eventually yeah. um, to the point where a sequel was made but it wasn't wildly successful. It was successful on DVD and video with college students. He's only got two credits to his name as a director and that's Boondock Saints and the Boondock Saints 2. And there's a similar thing happened with his band as well. I think they got dropped from their label um, and they eventually released the album to no success at all. That's right. And they all, they've all gone their own separate mm -hmm. ways. I mean, what one of the shots that I remember most about overnight is the final shot of Troy Duffy. And it's, whereas everything throughout the documentary has been up front, this is what's going on, this is what's going mm -hmm. on, uh, the camera's there invisible to everybody who appears on it. The final shot of Troy Duffy, Troy Duffy doesn't know he's being filmed. Yeah. It's him standing outside somewhere, having a chat with a guy, yeah. and he can't, and he, he looks from the distance, bedraggled, lonely, and it, it's a very telling shot, not only from the fact of where Troy is, but also how they filmed him. It's um, a really incredible story. It's a documentary I've watched numerous times because you, it's just so... You just can't believe it. No, that, it, is, um, it is flabbergasting. To have everything at your your feet and your disposal and to, to fuck it up so badly, it's oh, just yeah, really. incredible. So I still think to this day he doesn't... I, I can see that he wouldn't even believe that any part of it what happened was his fault, was his yeah. fault at all. but as a documentary it's 
the juxtaposition is with jarring. It's it's difficult because yeah. obviously these two guys weren't documentary filmmakers. They were his mates who were just literally recording behind the scenes mm. stuff. Instead, it turned into a what not to do, how not yeah. to make a film, how not to work your way through Hollywood. The scenes look like they're thrown together, and a little Certainly. less more of that. Yeah, a little less of that, and a little more um, endeavour, a better editing technique with. Yeah, well, like I said, these, these guys aren't filmmakers. They weren't no. filmmakers. And I mean, they certainly didn't yeah. set out to make anything. It, it, like it's it. the subject matter that makes this film mm. such a fascinating watch. Yeah, and it is one of those films where you have to watch it to believe it. Because mm. uh, I can't. I think Troy Duffy would probably be the only person on this planet who would get a movie deal and a record deal and manage to lose everything because of his own arrogance and ego it's just crazy so it does make me wonder if Troy Duffy is even aware of the film overnight oh he is yes he's very aware of it has he made any reviews yeah, he, he feels betrayed by <laughs> the two filmmakers who are probably his friends so yeah that's um, certainly a big lesson in how not to make a movie definitely wherever you listen to the, the podcast uh, just to make you aware we're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. Search for Indie Filmopolis. We've talked about this before, but on YouTube, great feature on there is being able to have playlists. So each episode has got its own dedicated playlist. So any film that we talk about, we'll have all the trailers or behind the scenes clips for that. And in some cases, we've been able to include the whole films if they're short films or whatever. Yeah. So, so definitely go check those out. Go check out. Uh, previous episodes as well if uh, this is your first time joining us but yeah social media you can follow Indie Filmopolis on Twitter Facebook and Instagram uh, it's Indie Filmopolis on Facebook and Instagram and just Filmopolis on Twitter because it's too long of a bloody title oh, bloody Twitter titles. if you like the sound of our film Almost Enemy you can check us out on Twitter and Facebook uh, just search Almost Enemy UK or Almost Enemy Movie We've got our own website, which is almostenemymovie.com, I think. Yeah, that's right, almostenemymovie.com. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as filmmaker, P-H-I-L-M underscore M-A-K-E-R. And Mike, I think that's it. Unless where can we I've find you? I've uh, got a new Facebook page up on your name. You can check me out. On, it's a on. Facebook profile. You have to add him as a friend. You have to yeah. be Mike's friend. It's uh, Mike Bourne. Uh, check me out. On, you'll see my... Uh, Gorgeous picture in there. That's right, in a and uh, almost enemy is the the main picture on the side. Very cool. If you have seen conditioning, it would be great if you could head over to IMDb, search conditioning, and give us a review and a rating. That'd be awesome. Again, if you want to check out the Transparent Film Festival in New York, do that if you want some honest feedback. And as ever, if you've got a short film or a feature film that you want us to look at, review, send it our way. We'd love to see it. If you've got any films you want us to check out that you haven't made, you just happen to like, let us know about those too. So anyway, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. We're off to uh, find a high-powered Hollywood producer to get him to fund our film, and then we're going to royally fuck him off. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Have you got anybody in mind? Um, no. Let's, let's see who we can find. Okay, thanks for listening. We're off.